Good morning and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies and I'm Programme Director here. Uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning uh, to discuss our new report on the government's response to the collapse of Carillion two years ago. Uh, the Institute has a long-standing interest in government contracting and this is the third report that we've published since the collapse. Uh, the first report looked at uh, how much government was spending on procurement, uh, what it was buying, who it was buying from, uh, and made recommendations on how to improve the quality of contract and spending data. Uh, our second report, which came out in September last year, uh, looked at the evidence for outsourcing in various different sectors, uh, identified some common problems and made recommendations on how to improve those. Uh, and the government has also been busy over the last two years, uh, and this new report uh, out today uh, assesses uh, how effective uh, those reforms have been, as well as the progress of longer-term initiatives to improve uh, the commercial skills of the civil service. To reflect on these, we have a great panel. Um, our first speaker will be uh, Tom Sass, senior researcher here at the Institute uh, and the author of this new paper. Um, this will be followed by uh, reflections from our two panellists. Uh, first will be uh, Chris Luck, the Chief Executive of the Shaw Trust, uh, followed by Liz Crowhurst, the Head of Infrastructure and Public Sector Policy at the CBI. Following the opening remarks, I will ask uh, a few questions of our panellists before opening it up to the audience for a Q&A. So please do think of questions while our panellists are speaking and save them up for that. Um, I'd also uh, strongly encourage you to tweet using uh, hashtag, uh, oh, thank you very much for showing me your phone there, hashtag uh, IFG outsourcing, and that also goes for the people who are watching on the live stream. Um, I've also got some housekeeping to do, so in the event of a fire alarm, uh, please exit the building down the stairs you came in uh, and gather by the statue of King George VI. Uh, no other statues of monarchs, just that one. Uh, and in the event of a first aid incident, we're not expecting anything, please don't panic, uh, but if there is a first aid incident, please clear the room um, so that our first aiders can come in and help. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Tom. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. Um, so, the collapse of Carillion just over two years ago, on the 15th of January 2018, uh, was a watershed moment. Uh, Carillion was the, the UK's second largest construction and services company with 18,000 employees here and global revenues of more than 5 billion. Uh, it was also government's second largest supplier with 420 public sector contracts ranging from HS2 to hospitals and schools to prisons. Carillion was the definition of a reckless and irresponsible company. It took on risks that it couldn't manage, acquired huge debts, failed to pay its suppliers on time or properly contribute to its pension schemes disguised its problems with aggressive accounting practices, and despite its rapidly declining performance, continued to award generous executive bonuses to the death. But while Carillion was an extreme example, it was far from alone in facing problems, having grown very large from, by taking big risks and pursuing revenue growth at the expense of operational control. Others had followed a similar path. So if that was the kind of company that was winning more and more government work, what did it say about government itself? Two years on, we wanted to look at whether government had recognised those problems and taken action to ensure another Carillion was not possible. So I'm briefly going to run through the findings of, of the report, but there's much more detail in the report itself, which you can find on our website. So the first thing to acknowledge is that government's uh, immediate response to the crisis was successful. Uh, so the contingency planning initiated in uh, July 2017, so that's the bottom, sort of middle at the bottom of this chart here, six months before Carillion's eventual collapse uh, was effective. And in January 2018, when the uh, government was under pressure from the company and its creditors who demanded a bailout, uh, it, the government succeeded in playing a difficult hand well and minimising disruption to services, job losses and costs to taxpayers. To government's credit, Carillion's collapse also prompted uh, considerable self-examination as well as scrutiny from others. So no fewer than 13 inquiries uh, were launched looking variously into the company's collapse, government's wider approach to outsourcing, and the role of auditors and regulators. Uh, the most important of these was the Cabinet Office's review 
uh, which led to the Outsourcing Playbook, a guidance document which sets out in quite thorough detail uh, proposals for reforming outsourcing, including addressing problems uh, with market engagement, risk allocation, and bid selection. Other inquiries focused on the wider system, including the role of regulators for pensions and audit, and four, those highlighted in pink on the screen behind me, are still in ongoing, including the official receiver's investigation into wrongdoing by company directors. So has all this looking in the mirror led to real change? Uh, well, back in September, in the report Nick mentioned, which looked at the last 40 years of outsourcing, we argued that if the playbook was fully implemented, it would address many of the problems that existed in government outsourcing. However, we noted that changing culture and behaviour in government would be difficult, and many of the playbook's uh, proposals were already government policy and had been frequently ignored by departments. So a year on from publication, uh, the playbook has, I think, made a good start. Uh, it passed the first hurdle of any attempt to reform government process, and it's been widely accepted to be helpful uh, and sensible by civil servants. And this was not a given. Uh, while many of the policies were not new, it brought them together into one structured process to which departments could then be held accountable. And officials told us that it wasn't gathering dust. Uh, the initial training had been successful in getting uh, officials familiar with it, and all of that has been at a time when the civil service has been under real pressure due to Brexit. I think these reforms have also been helped by the success of a longer-term effort, and that is to improve commercial capability in the civil service. So over the last five years, uh, the civil service has increasingly hired in commercial experts from outside. So the slide behind me shows the career path of the current 22 commercial directors of government departments. The slightly minty green colour in the middle there is private sector, uh, the blue is uh, public bodies, and the purple is the civil service. Uh, so what that shows you is that now almost all commercial directors of, of government departments have considerable private sector expertise. Um, and that simply wasn't the case five years ago. Uh, the commercial function has also rolled out a tough examination which has helped to raise standards. However, improvements in outsourcing are a long way from being embedded. So while 10 out of 17 departments have published a commercial pipeline, one of the things the playbook requires, uh, many of these remain difficult to access, buried on departments' websites, uh, and of poor quality, uh, which limits their use to suppliers. Uh, scrutiny of project plans is patchy, and officials feel that they can game the playbook process uh, to produce a sort of desired result. Some departments continue to ignore straightforward aspects of the new guidance, such as by including unlimited liability in contracts. Many departments haven't updated their own internal policies to be aligned with the playbook, and there is little evidence yet of improvements in the way government assesses risk and balances cost and quality when deciding who to award bids to. In addition, local government and, and public bodies, including the NHS, haven't been covered by post-Carillion reforms, despite being responsible for over 100 billion of procurement spend each year. So while government has recognised the scale of the problems that Carillion laid bare and shown serious intent to address them, I think there's a real danger of backsliding if the Johnson government doesn't commit to improving outsourcing. So what should it do? Well, five things I would highlight. First, name a minister in the Cabinet Office responsible for driving improvements in outsourcing. Uh, Oliver Dowden was in that role, but he's been moved, and it's not yet obvious who his successor will be. Uh, and that having a committed minister with the support of Number 10 is really critical if we're to see some of the change uh, that the playbook hoped to, to lead to. Second, use this, summer's spending, use this summer's spending review to give the Cabinet Office long-term funding uh, to support and scrutinise government contracting. So currently the team in the Cabinet Office responsible for this, their funding will run out in March next year, and interviewees unanimously felt that would be a disaster. Um, it should, the, the team should also be centrally funded. At the moment, it's top-sliced from uh, departments, and that would help it to work more widely with the public sector rather than just with central government. Third, extend contracting guidance and training to local government and the NHS. Uh, so awareness of these reforms in those places at the moment is very low, and the Cabinet Office clearly has limited remit as well as budget uh, to work beyond central government. So I think with sufficient funding... Uh, the Cabinet Office could work with the LGA and NHS bodies to try and extend some of these best practices to those areas. Fourth, 
publish an annual assessment of progress uh, on improvements with outsourcing to hold departments to account that are not sort of playing ball on this. And fifth, fully implement the reforms to improve corporate governance, which are needed to prevent companies from behaving like Carillion did. And that includes equipping the new audit uh, and regulatory governance authority with the full statutory powers recommended by the Kingman Review. So to wrap up, the collapse of Carillion was a crisis for UK government, but it also created an opportunity to deliver lasting reform. The government must not waste that opportunity only to find itself facing another crisis in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Chris, your thoughts? Thank you. Um, and Tom, thank you for your, um, your, your top line there. Um, so good morning, everybody. Uh, I am CEO of Shaw Trust, and, and we're, we're sponsoring this event today because outsourcing, and for us in particular, people-centric um, services, I think is an incredible way to create, um, to create opportunities, ultimately, for our beneficiaries. So this is a really important debate that we want to continue to encourage uh, and to support. So, so, Nick, thank you for having us alongside you today. Um, and we're here today as a voice, in particular, of the VCSC community and the SME. I say a voice, not the voice. I'm really quite keen to not try and make a play for that. But I think we need to connect better with those sectors in this very important and still relatively high-level debate. Um, and it's something that we wish to work on. Now, I do welcome the IFG report. Uh, I, I found it to have been a very balanced view of where we are now and where we need to go. Um, and I think a lot of good uh, progress has been made since the collapse of Carillion. I don't, think, I don't think that Carillion is in the past. It's a little bit like Marley's ghost. It's really useful to have it there. It's that benchmark of where we don't want to return to. So, so although we are not looking backwards now, we're using it absolutely as, as that which propels us forward into the future. I think the number of exhaustive inquiries that have gone into it does allow us to understand the pros and cons of outsourcing. And I think that from it has emerged a pathway to better contracting environments that protect, firstly, the beneficiary, secondly, the taxpayer, and then importantly, the diverse provider base that government wishes to see if it is executed um, correctly. I think the manifestation of all of this is the outsourcing playbook. I particularly welcome the fact that this has been a co-produced guide with the sector providers engaged at the heart of debate, although it probably needs to engage some of those smaller VCSEs and SMEs into that debate, but I sense that that is, that is coming and it would be welcomed. I think the work that Claire Gibbs, as Director of Outsourcing at the Cabinet Office, um, has built a strong consensus around what needs to be done and has delivered a framework and structure that is building confidence in the aim of government to prevent a Carillion-like event, uh, but at the same time lay the foundations for healthy, active outsourcing sector that delivers for our beneficiaries. I, I always go back to our beneficiaries. The revised playbook at, due out this month is also proof that the guidelines will continue to evolve where necessary, and that's quite important. And version 2 itself does embrace social value, with, with it now being re referred to 14 times, a considerably greater extent than before. However, I'll also say that we find ourselves in a twin-speed outsourcing world. Primes are benefiting from the framework structure and engagement, but little benefit yet to tickle, trickle down to VCSEs and SMEs, um, and this is what we need to um, also get after. I think it's also, the playbook has also strengthened its guidance on risk transfer and unlimited liability. And it's a barrier to all, but especially for SMEs and VCSEs, who do not have the capacity to deal with uh, onerous contracts. If we are to encourage a diverse community-based provider base that brings expertise and innovation, then risk apportionment needs to permeate all the way through departmental contracts. And this needs to not be just up front at the beginning of a contract. Contracts can be for up to five years or more. So the ability to reassess and reward throughout the term is essential as circumstances change. Now just look at today with COVID-19 and the potential impact on, uh, on contracts. 
and of course the financial crash of 2008. So we do need that flexible approach. I think also from a VCOC perspective, the current bidding process tends on the whole to create barriers to entry, short notification invitations to tender, and or impossible to navigate contract sites, which Tom has already pointed out, tend to overwhelm capacities uh, to react in time. Mix all of this with the incredibly complex qualification process leads to SMEs and VCSCs not being able to answer the questions and bear the costs should they not win. If we are to create a rich local diversity of providers, which is what the government wants, that can come together rapidly to address specific needs as and when they arise, we have to improve the access pathways. And there is a continuing role for outsourcing and cabinet office in this. In this, there is something about how primes and supply chains work, but in my own experience, the pricing of contracts, with the emphasis still predominantly on cost rather than social value, leaves little to no room for investing in the supply chain in order to nurture creativity, localism, and to increase robustness and resilience as a consequence of being in that supply chain. We should be able to step away and leave the local better for it. This must be corrected, and determining what percentage of contract scoring goes to creating this kind of social value is part of that debate. And I think I've probably used my time up. I could go on, but I will stop there. So thank you. Thank you very much. Liz. Thanks, Nick. Um, we're obviously also very delighted to be here and be part of this conversation. So we're, I'm from the CBI, who are the UK's largest business organisation, and we represent about 190,000 businesses across the UK, ranging from SMEs, so there's a little bit of crossover with Chris's patch, but also we have most of the strategic suppliers in membership. Um, I think it's fair to say that our members across the board have very much welcomed the creation of the outsourcing playbook. Uh, there was a lot of things in there that we'd been campaigning on for a number of years. And I would also kind of echo what Chris said around the kind of collaborative approach to the development of the playbook, which I think actually more than the content itself was the real shift in approach from the Cabinet Office. Um, and we've also seen that replicated in the recent refresh, which we've been, you know, lucky to be a part of. And also our members have enjoyed being able to feed into that process. Um, in terms of reflections on the IFG report, I think, broadly speaking, we agree very strongly with a lot of the recommendations and the findings that you have laid out. I think the, the word that kind of comes up most frequently in conversations about the playbook is uh, patchy. Uh, and when we say patchy, I think what we're really talking about is patchy in two senses. So there's kind of patchy in terms of the different parts of the playbook. We've seen really good progress on things like living wills, prompt payment, and also pre-market engagement. But some of those more thorny issues around risk and cost, as Chris alluded to, that's where we're seeing problems still existing across the marketplace. Um, and about two years ago, we did some work looking at what was driving bid uh, awards, and actually we found around 60% was based on cost. And from conversations recently with members, I'd say that that probably hasn't shifted. Um, I also recently spoke to one of our major contractors, and they said they'd walked away from three quarters of a billion pounds worth of contracts in the last four months because of onerous risk terms and unfair pricing. So I think on the risk and cost side, we're still seeing some, some major issues across the market. I would also say that the kind of push for more uh, complex procurement routes to be used, so encouraging things like competitive dialogue, we're not seeing that flow through and there's still a tendency to rely on single bid tenders or very simplistic procurement processes. Secondly, on kind of the, the patchy question, uh, we would agree very strongly with the report's findings that different parts of the market are seeing varying degrees of improvement. Um, we've certainly seen some departments embrace the playbook, particularly at senior levels, whereas others, there's certainly still some resistance to being uh, given guidance from the Cabinet Office. I think, though, what we would say, and, and certainly the feedback that we have from members, is that we shouldn't be disheartened by this. Actually, it's no surprise, given the scale of the marketplace, the complication of public procurement. Actually, it's unsurprising that we haven't seen more progress at this point. Um, and it's important that we actually remain positive about the fact that we are moving in the right direction. And with that in mind, I guess I wanted to focus today on where should we go next, rather than uh, some of the issues with current implementation. Um, so I wanted to focus really on three things, implementation, the scope of the playbook, and how can we link the playbook to other government priorities. 
So on implementation, as I've said, I think we would, we would say it's been patchy and inconsistent. Um, but I think there's also a need to kind of be realistic about what can be achieved. Not everyone across government, over 33,000 commercial officials, can be experts on the playbook. Um, so for us, a real baseline is just making sure that there's awareness across the board. We also think there's something about implementation going hand in hand with enforcement. Um, so Chris and I were talking about the playbook and the need for it to have teeth. Um, and that, I think, is the area where our members would say uh, currently departments are kind of getting away with, with not applying the playbook in practice. Um, we have seen some attempts from the Cabinet Office to use their spending control powers, but actually that's relatively limited in terms of the types of contracts that they can oversee. Um, one, one, I guess, opportunity to address this may be the procurement green paper that we expect later in the summer, um, where there will be potentially options to change the laws of procurement post-Brexit, um, and that might be an opportunity to revisit what powers the Cabinet Office has to enforce some of the key parts of the playbook. And for us, I guess, it would mainly be about risk and cost would be some of the key things that we'd like to see in there. Um, but alongside the push for kind of greater teeth and enforcement powers, we think that there is still definitely room for more work on the cultural and behavioural side because, and to use the phrase, it's all about winning hearts and minds as much as it is about punishing those who don't apply the principles in practice. Secondly, I think we would be keen to see the scope of the playbook extended. Um, we've been quite consistent in the view that actually currently it's quite limited, the focus on services, the focus on central government predominantly. Um, and I guess a key message from us actually in a report we published last week looking at the financial sustainability of the construction sector is that we see no logical reason why playbook principles should not be mandated for construction and engineering projects. Um, after all, Carillion was partially a construction company and actually from our perspective this is one of the sectors where we see the most, um, I guess, fluctuations in uh, financial sustainability and actually over 3,000 construction companies uh, went into liquidation in the last year. Um, when you compare that to outsourcing, that's obviously much, much higher. So we think there's a big opportunity there. We'd agree with the IFG on local authorities and the NHS. We appreciate that the Cabinet Office can have no direct power over these bodies, but would like to see training extended as much as possible um, and would be happy to kind of work with uh, the LGA and others to push that. Um, and I think the final thing on scope is the playbook focuses very heavily on pre-market engagement and procurement, but for our members it's often the contract management and delivery phases of outsourcing contracts where we see the most problems arise. So we would like to see over time the outsourcing playbook start to think about those parts of the commissioning cycle. And we're pleased that in the refresh there will be uh, a new chapter on building relationships which will think a bit more about contract management. And then finally... I think at the moment the playbook, and quite rightly so, is about getting the basics right. But for our members in kind of looking into the medium and longer term, what we'd like it to be about is not shoring up the market, but actually transforming how we procure and how the public and private sectors are working together. Um, and for us, that's about linking the playbook with some of the other big push uh, priorities across government. So social value, which Chris touched on, it is in the refresh, uh, but we would say not enough. Um, and there's not necessarily a, enough alignment at this stage. We'd like to see those two streams of work come together. There's also a bit in the playbook on innovation, so some of the stuff around procurement routes could help more innovative procurement processes, um, but actually we think that could go further. Um, and then finally, we've obviously got a huge uh, race to net zero going on right now, um, and that's not part of the playbook, and we think that going forwards, actually bringing in some of the sustainability requirements and making sure that the playbook supports those types of uh, partnerships between business and government could be really helpful um, and help push the playbook even further. So I'll leave it there. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, you noted that it's uh, a bit patchy in places, and Tom, you said that some departments continue to ignore. Which departments are particularly bad at this, or have you heard are particularly <laughs> bad at this? Um, so we talked to quite a large number of officials and suppliers, um, some were sort of uh, reticent to, to name names, but others sort of were happy to name names on an anonymised basis. And I would say that a few came up in particular. So DWP, MOD often were the ones coming up, uh, highlighted by 
quite a few suppliers. Um, but there were also problems on Crown Commercial Service frameworks. You know, so th th these extended across government. Um, but there were a couple of departments that were particular high repeat offenders, I would say. Does that chime with what you're hearing from your members? I would say, on the whole, yes. Um, I guess the only thing I would add to that is that it's not necessarily department by department. Um, we were talking about before, there, is, there are actually like pockets of excellence within even some of the bad departments. Um, so it's not necessarily the case that you can kind of say one department is bad and one department is good. Actually, also, we, we have members that provide very different types of goods and services, and they would have different experiences as well. So it's a very complicated patchwork rather than just big patches. Chris, I'm not going to ask you to burn your bridges with specific <laughs> departments. Um, Thank but you. But I, I, I know you had a, a long career in the, the military before becoming the, the chief executive of Shawshank. What surprised you most in joining a charity with a large number of contracts with government and how government goes about outsourcing? That's a very good question. Um, and I should be cautious on this one. I think what surprised me most coming into this um, with a particular view of the third sector and its role um, and therefore an assumption of how it would be treated by not so much government but by department was the fact that there seemed to be a, there seemed to have been a massive shift to transactional relationships rather gen what I would call genuine partnerships to the benefit of the beneficiaries now I think this is probably a, a very real consequence of Carillion, that loss of confidence, um, and then the very big push towards a, taking a much tougher commercialised view of how these contracts should be run. So I think something's been lost there. I think, um, I, I think the relationship aspect is gone, which allows you to have those communications in advance. And if you look at some, the way some of these contract bids are, are set at the moment, you almost can't have the conversations that you need to have. Um, but I think the way the outsourcing playbook is going is some of the departments are moving towards embracing um, the sort of the, the, the push to better pre-market engagement. I think the should cost modeling is a very powerful tool to actually put the truth out there to then negotiate will, will help. Um, am I seeing green shoots? I, I, I genuinely think so. I think there is an appetite to correct the pendulum. We have gone from one extreme to the other, and I think the consensus, the building consensus, certainly from government cabinet office, and then leaking out, leaking out might be the best descriptor, leaking out to departments and beginning to be embraced. So like Liz, I think there's a lot to welcome and to look forward to and to keep pressing on. Because especially for us in the people-centric space, <coughs> and wanting to invest in the local community and the supply chains, you need to have a better quality, you need to have a better conversation. I'd love to see the day where those in our supply chains don't have to go through the bureaucratic, bureaucratic hurdles of, of evidencing in order to be in the contract. But that's a trust relationship. Um, so that's the thing that surprised me most. Very transactional, very hard-nosed, commercial but not necessarily good commercial and we need to adjust that back to having relationships that are mutually trusting and mutually risk sharing and risk owning and I think if we get back there which is the direction of travel then then our beneficiaries will, will, will see that. Brilliant thank you okay I'm going to open up to questions from the audience, uh, can I please ask that you keep your questions short, uh, that they are in fact questions, not long statements, uh, and that you say your name and where you're from. Uh, we'll take a few at a time, so if people would like to put their hands up. Uh, one here, one there, and there, and then we'll come to you in the next round. Thank you, Nick. John Tizard, independent advisor and commentator. Do you not feel that the big omission by government post Carillion was not to use the Carillion collapse as a catalyst for a comprehensive review of the efficacy of public service outsourcing. And second, secondly, why is it that we still assume that outsourcing is the default rather than setting the default as publicly owned, publicly managed, publicly accountable services, 
with a very robust make-or-buy decision which demonstrates beyond any doubt that when there is outsourcing, there's a public benefit for it. It seems to be there's an element of that in the playbook, but not enough. Maybe we ought to be playing a different game rather than just adopting the playbook. Thank you. Yes, uh, David Herrera, I uh, was uh, chairman of the Insolvency Service, uh, so very familiar with Carillion. Um, I think I'd just like to ask a question really about the bidding and procurement process, um, which was driven, in my understanding, from the uh, way in which uh, the bidders were entitled to account for the benefit of contracting and, of course, government's desire to drive the lowest possible price, which is not the same as value for money. Um, and I do wonder if there is scope for a slightly different approach to contract outsourcing, which is actually to say this is actually going to be the return that we expect bidders to achieve and remove that price competition beneath that point. And then the point of competition is actually quality of service, not purely price. It, it, it means you don't get the pricing transparency of getting the cheapest possible price, but it means you get a fair competition about service, and you don't drive price down to the lowest nature where, where far too much risk is being accepted. Thank you, and then just behind. Gus Tugendhat, founder of a data provider called Tussle. Uh, analysis by our company shows that 18% um, of contract awards on TED by volume were single bid contract awards. If you think about that, that's quite a damning indictment. One, nearly one-fifth of contracts didn't even attract more than one bidder. Um, what does that tell the panel about pre-market engagement and the outsourcing playbook? Brilliant, thank you. Uh, just to quickly on uh, John's point on the kind of comprehensive uh, review. So it was something that the Information Commissioner's Office actually recommended in, and in the government's response they actually cited our previous work as reasons why they didn't have to do it. Uh, and it's a very good report, but uh, you know, it would have been good for the government to do it as well. Um, Tom, I'm going to come to you. I would hope we are reasonably independent. But, uh, <laughs> um, Tom, I'll come to you um, particularly on the kind of the make versus buy decision and outsourcing by default. Yeah, it, just to pick up quickly on John's point on, on the efficacy review, I think one of the things we said in our report six months ago was that actually the evidence base for outsourcing is, is not nearly robust enough. Um, and, you know, you've had repeatedly statements in a quite sort of blasé way from senior officials and ministers about 20-25% savings, and actually the evidence just doesn't stack up that those are available anymore. Um, so I'd agree with you that in addition to the work that we and others are doing outside, there needs to be a much more robust effort to try and evaluate the impacts of outsourcing as well. Uh, on, on the make versus buy decision, I think if the process is it itself is robust enough, it doesn't particularly matter uh, which starting point you start from. So Labour called for a presumption in favour of in-house with a make versus buy you know, you could argue that with some services that are outsourced, there is a presumption that they'll still be outsourced with a make versus buy. If that make versus buy decision is properly, you know, done with the evidence um, in a robust fashion, I don't think that matters too much. I think the problem occurs when you have a sort of institutional bias in favour of one outcome or another. And I think the risks are equally there if that bias is too much in favour of in-house and ignoring the potential benefits of, of the market. Um, so I, I would focus more on the process than presumption one way or another. Just pick up on David's point. So I, I completely agree. I think the sort of race to the bottom on price is you know, probably the biggest problem that we have in contracting markets and actually sustained efforts to say let's focus beyond cost, not just on the lowest price, have largely been met with failure. Um, John Manzoni admitted as much, actually, in a, in a PACAC hearing when he said we just don't have the sophistication to look beyond price, which was quite an, an interesting comment. Um, I, 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 I completely agree we should be encouraging competition on quality and on, on what the outcomes are. I think how you get there is more complicated because I think you have to work out what are the things you can measure in a bid process and then how are you going to assess them in contract management. But I think that's absolutely where we need to be going. And at this point in the outsourcing experiment, actually the competition on price isn't where the real benefits are. 
we've had 20, 30 years of that and driving significant inefficiency out of the system. The, the real benefits now are to get com competition on quality. Thank you. Ned, do you want to pick up on that quality versus cost point? Yeah, no, I completely agree with what Tom said. Um, I think we do see that model being adopted in some places. So people like SCAPE, one of the construction engineering frameworks, they have run competitions which the price or the profit margin is set and they compete predominantly on a mix of quality and social value. Um, and that has been like very strongly welcomed by our members that operate in that space. I guess the challenge, and, and this links to what Tom just said, is do we have the capability to do that more widely? Um, and my sense would be, at this point, probably not. Um, and that's maybe why it's not happening so frequently. Um, I think also on the kind of race to the bottom point, there is obviously a role for suppliers. Um, and we've been quite vocal with our members around the fact that they should be walking away from unsustainable bids rather than just going for uh, kind of profit shares. Um, and actually that's been met increasingly with kind of a positive response from more and more businesses. So I think as much as there is much more that government could do, there is also a role for the business community in saying we're going to step away from this if it's, if it's not a sustainable contract. Can I ask you to also pick up on, on Gus's point about kind of lack of competition and single bid tenders? Yeah, yeah and I guess that links quite nicely. Um, as I mentioned in my remarks, we have seen lots of our members walking away from bidding for particular tenders, and that is probably contributing to the rise in single bids that we're seeing across the market. Um, on the whole, the main reasons that we found that members walk away is risk, price, uh, and the third thing would be intellectual property, so where departments are trying to keep some of the IP that's generated or all of the IP that's generated as part of a contract. Those are the three key reasons why our members will say, actually, we're not going to bid in this situation. Um, and actually, uh, thinking about the kind of SME community, there is also some of the barriers to entry that Chris uh, mentioned, which are also causing a kind of shrinkage of the number of players that are bidding for particular contracts. So for us, it's about tackling the risk-cost element, but also making sure as many people as possible can come to the table um, by lowering those barriers to entry. Question. Uh, I think there's three great questions and some really good points there. Certainly from my own experience as a, as a people-centric services group. Um, we've made a deliberate policy decision that we will not now bid uh, at margins that are not sustainable um, because it's a, it's a fool's game. And what that then means is that we put, we put inappropriate pressure and stress through our supply chain because if we're already on a margin that is barely sustainable and cannot tolerate the risk that exists in the real world that sometimes evolves um, uh, during the course of a contract, then you can't look after your supply chain. And we are a business that wants uh, to be sustainable because we're there for our beneficiaries. There's no good being here today, gone tomorrow. And we also have an intent to create value in our supply chain to make them more robust, resilient, and there when we, when we finish the contract. Therefore, we need to have a sustainable margin of profitability in order to invest for our beneficiaries. So the race to the bottom has been extremely damaging to the marketplace, which Gus gets back to your, your point, and, and your organisations exposing uh, realities through information and data is really, really powerful. Um, so I think the, the numbers tell the story, and I think the 18% could well be a reflection of the fact that, that organisations, large-scale organisations, yet alone the small ones, are walking away from um, the marketplace at the very time when, the, when departments need a vibrant marketplace, because that's where innovation, that's where creativity, that's where understanding the local and being able to react quickly happens. But there's a price to it. And I think as a society, if we're not prepared to carry the price through government contracting, because these are other ways of achieving government aims and outcomes of creating that healthy levelling up through the regions and through, lo and through the local. And, and there's, you know, a, a, and I cannot say it any other way, there's a price to that. But I think it's a price worth paying, as it is a worth, price worth paying for living wage, as it is for making sure that you address modern slavery, as it is uh, in addressing environmental and CSR and all those other great things that we're up for. But if it's a race to the bottom price, you can't do that. It's just lip service. And I think the providers and the marketplace are now willing to stand up for their values. And that's a tremendous journey. 
And it's actually quite scary, especially for the SMEs and the VCSEs, because what you're potentially doing is walking, walking away with no future, that is certain. But I think it's a risk worth taking, and I think that in itself will help create the sort of impetus within government and within cabinet office to put some teeth to um, the outsourcing playbook as well. Um, and teeth is really important. Now, whether it, it becomes law through the Green Paper or some other mechanism, I don't know. I'm not the specialist, but we need teeth. Uh, and I think the other thing is this needs to be policed. Um, and before I forget, I will make the plea now, is that, is that um, the outsourcing, uh, the director of outsourcing in her department has got to be financed. This is not, this is not a short term. I think it's due to run out of financing uh, by next year. Um, it should be funded to at least the end of this parliament. We are still an experiment, and it, we've, got to get, we've got to move beyond that. Just add a quick point on how you drive change on risk and price, which is so. I think one senior official we spoke to summed this up quite well when he said their default approach was transfer all risk and choose the lowest price possible. Um, that was that was the sort of default that was expected. I think there's a couple of things that you can do to try and weed out that attitude. The first is actually have some transparency about where departments are ignoring the types of approach to risk that the playbook says they should be adopting. So actually calling that out where it's happening. And on price, actually you need transparency about where departments are consistently picking the lowest price bid. One of the things we asked was whether departments had any sense of the kind of proportion of bids where they went for the lowest price, and most of them didn't. So actually that would be quite a simple way to, to try and tackle that. Nick, can I just um, talk to John's point, because I forgot to. I, I personally would, would welcome uh, a greater insourcing contribution to the bid process if for no other reason, is that it would highlight what things really cost. And I think that would be really helpful. My worry would be is that, is that creativity from a rich flora and fauna of local VCSC and SMEs might be lost, um, which means that the potential for innovation etc., could go with it. But actually, it could be a really useful benchmark if each, each um, government department had to put an insourcing bid in. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to open it up for another round of questions. So, firstly, this gentleman here, and then, yep, these two. <coughs> Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, Carillion didn't happen in a vacuum, and there have been various comments about the quality of government procurement. And, I mean, the issues around this are very long standing. I mean, I think back to the Gershon report in 2004. Um, up and here it says calling for further professionalization of the procurement function within the public sector. So I guess my question is, could you possibly consider what's gone wrong in a broader and longer context? Thank you. Uh, and then, yeah, gentleman here and then there, and we'll come to the next round. Is there a mic? I have a mic. Oh, okay. We'll go okay. To you first. Uh, I'm Mark Pawsey. I'm the, a member of the Bayes Select Committee, and we did one of the many reports into Carillion. I just wanted to ask about the role of existing regulators. So, people like the Small Business Commissioner, the FRC, the Insolvency Service, and how the work that they do can tie into the proposals that you've made and uh, encourage best practice and provide some sanction uh, when things are going wrong, and also perhaps identify companies that may be in trouble. If Carillion had been identified earlier, um, a lot of problems might have been overcome. Thank you. Uh, and then final question here at the front. Thanks. Uh, Mario Dunn, FRC. And my question links to the, the last two, and it's uh, going back to the lessons of Carillion. Um, it was interesting to see how many of those commercial directors had private sector experience, but Carillion was winning public sector contracts virtually up to the point that it went bankrupt. So clearly there was a gap between, uh, um, and, and if, you'd, if you'd looked at, uh, at the stock market, you would have seen that it was being short sold uh, on an ongoing basis. So there were people out there who, who did understand the, the uh, financial predicament of the company. So there's clearly a gap between uh, the, what government as a client does in procurement and, and its due diligence on, on, those, on those companies and how do you think that gap can be closed? Thank you. I'm going to come to you first. Perfect. 
Um, I'll start with the question around, I guess, capability um, and the fact that that's kind of been a long-standing issue. Um, and certainly, I think the conversations that we have with members would reflect that, and they would say there was a period of even decades where they didn't see much improvement. Uh, and in fact, some of our research suggests that there was a period between kind of 2010 and 2015 when they actually felt that commercial skills were declining, uh, in part because of some of the things that previous IFG workers picked up around turnover, uh, movement between departments um, and movement into the private sector. Um, more positively, what we would say is since they brought in Gareth Rees-Williams as the government's chief commercial officer, since they've introduced things like the commercial standards, uh, they've actually introduced some quite rigorous training for commercial professionals. Um, we have seen an improvement. Um, certainly members would say we're not there yet um, and there is a long way to go because a lot of that training is focused on the more senior officials um, and trying to get some of the more junior people up to a, a baseline level. Um, so we will need to see that continue. Um, but on the capability point, I think that we have, we are moving in the right direction and we should be positive about that. Um, I guess that would link me to taking the last question around why was government still giving Carillion contracts when the rest of the world was saying this company is kind of going down. Um, part of Part of, I guess, what our members would say is actually a lot of what's in the playbook seeks to address that to make sure that that doesn't happen again. A lot of the things around living wills and resolution planning, the kind of improved dialogue between government and its strategic suppliers, the strength and role of people like the Crown representatives. Actually, you would hope that if a company was starting down that track again, there would be a much more transparent and ongoing conversation about what was happening within that company um, and certainly some of the corporate governance failings that, that Carillion was uh, involved with would have been exposed much sooner in the process than, than what we saw with Carillion's collapse. Um, I don't think I'm qualified to answer the longer historical question, but certainly on the other two points, um, I think the Cabinet Office um, training programme that they're rolling out um, is, is certainly a step in the right direction of making sure that the, that the understanding is there. And there is absolutely an appetite uh, for them to also try and force together connecting up of departmental commercial but with operations and with policy to get a richer understanding of what the contract uh, and the bidding and the, uh, and the offerings actually mean. I think that will be enormously helpful as well. And let's touch on things like living wills, etc. I think those will all make a big difference, as so will the should cost modelling. I think that's going to be an enormous um, step forward. Um, so I think those will all help. But of course, Ultimately, also, businesses have a role and responsibility to ensure that they are playing by the book as well and doing the right things. And I think sometimes we need to hold the mirror up and, and just check uh, that we're, do we're doing our part. Um, so it can't all be um, government intrusion and policing and enforcing. I think at some stage, um, the provider base has got to do the right thing as well. And that comes back to trust, openness and transparency, which will help drive that forward as well. Thank um, you. Tom, um, on Paul's point, I think you're absolutely right to flag the sort of longer history of this. I, don't, I think those earlier efforts weren't successful um, and the, the sort of more recent efforts have been for a couple of reasons, really. First of all, I think what you had was an effort to sort of professionalise but largely based on training up civil servants who had been civil servants for their whole career rather than bringing in skills from outside. Um, that's the, the latter is something that we've seen happening increasingly in the last sort of 10 years or so. Um, I think the second thing that's happened particularly since 2015, and there was a, a moment when Jeremy Hayward and John Manzoni said commercial skills are one of our top three priorities, um, is that you've seen flexibility on pay which has enabled some of that recruitment. It's quite difficult to try and get senior commercial people coming into the civil service if you don't have that. Um, and then you've also seen the creation of a, a sort of commercial function at the centre to try and raise standards, do this assessment, which uh, Liz and Chris have been talking about, um, and, and sort of drive progress across government. So I think where actually there'd been pretty slow progress through the sort of 2000s, and you had, certainly if you talk to suppliers about that period, they would say there was some commercial naivety in government, which contributed to them making quite large <coughs> profits. I think now you have a very different picture where you actually have suppliers feeling a little bit hard done because you have government with some quite significant expertise. Um, on Mark's point, um, so I think your committee did an excellent job of outlining exactly where that whole system of checks and balance 
balances failed uh, on Carillion. Uh, and I think Rachel Reeves has led, led some really good work looking at other areas where that's happened too, including Thomas Cook uh, recently. So I think the, the recommendations that came out of that, and I had on my, my slide the, the Kingman Review, the Bryden Review, and, and, and several which basically took this point of saying the audit and, and sort of financial regulation is not fit for purpose and how would you redesign it. Uh, I think the recommendations of Kingman and Bryden saying we should set up a new regulator, it should have statutory powers, um, was absolutely right. And I think it's regrettable that the government hasn't yet fully implemented that and I think it should do so uh, promptly. The other really interesting thing which I think Kingman uh, recommended but separately to his review was that you should have independent appointment of auditors um, rather than companies choosing their, their own auditors. Now that would clearly be a much more radical change um, but I think there's a pretty strong argument about actually in a, in a way breaking some of that link which is not working. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear the government respond to that recommendation in, in, in a kind of serious fashion. I'm going to pick up on the small business point because I think one of the positive things that we have seen come out of Corinian is a real shift in approach to prompt payment. Um, and the Small Business Commissioner has played some role in that to date and, and we've been kind of pushing for him to have more responsibility and powers to actually own the prompt payment code and see that that's enforced appropriately. Um, but I would say that, that over the last 12 months we have seen the data on prompt payment through Bayes' duty to report go completely in the right direction mm. and the Cabinet Office's intervention uh, saying that you could only win contracts if you can demonstrate good payment practices has also seen a marked improvement across the strategic supplier base um, and I think the recent figures show there's only one strategic supplier now that's not complying with the requirements so I would say that's a good news story that's come out of Carillion. Uh, while you're talking can I ask you to pick up on Tom's final point about kind of independent appointment of auditors is that something your members have spoken about? Uh, it is something that we've been talking to members about over the last year. I would say feedback is still mixed uh, <laughs> to sit on the fence then. Um, and it's certainly something that we are going to continue to explore. We're actually kind of in the process of bolstering our corporate governance team because we appreciate that it's a really important issue. Um, and as to kind of what's in your report, actually we've seen much greater progress, much faster progress on the outsourcing kind of market side than perhaps we've seen on strengthening corporate government's oversight. Okay, I'm going to take uh, one very quick final round of questions. Uh, there was definitely one down here. And next to okay, great. Hi, Gavin Heyman from the Open Contracting Partnership. So my question links back to the Institute of Government's first report on just data and transparency information. So if you look at the lessons learned from Carillion, when Carillion went bankrupt, I think only something like 10 to 25 of the contracts were on Contracts Finder. How do we get that government has full visibility of that information and it links it to a proper planning pipeline that businesses can see and proper spending data that we can all track and make sure there's kind of better quality delivery rather than just the cheapest services? Just a, an open question. Brilliant, thank you. And then next to you. Uh, Fiona Hassan from Women on Boards UK. Um, Tom, you mentioned Johnson, uh, and I'm just thinking from the political perspective, you talked about the playbook not being followed by all departments, some being better than the other. We seem to have a government at the moment that's very command and control. Um, we also have a government uh, in general, historically, that doesn't like red tape. So I'm just wondering how that plays into the successful implementation of this playbook and the importance of taking in as... Um, uh, Chris talked about you know, social side, you know, that there has to be a culture of acceptance. Um, not clear that that's happening at the top of our government, I'm just saying. Thank you. Okay, um, so if I can ask panellists to respond to those and also any uh, final remarks that you would like to make. Chris, I'll come to you first. Um, on, on visibility and visibility and clarity of pipelines, I, I, I'm all for it. Um, I think it's essential in order to actually generate the sort of um, provider base that you want. And especially, again, I'll speak, you know, on, for SMEs and VCSEs, um, they need to be able to take a long view of what's coming and therefore then be able to set up um, the organisations to spread the cost over a bit of time in order to get after it. That's one of those barriers. I think the haphazard um, landing pages, the, the um, not necessarily up-to-date information, and then the inability to connect the whole is a is a drag on um, on excellence in in outsourcing, and I think that needs to be addressed. Um, but I'm also really conscious that that the cabinet office know this, um, and and they're after it. 
Um, um, and there are obviously technical solutions and challenges to that as well. I think, um, Fiona, on your side, I think it's about culture. Um, but moving from transactional to relational is a cultural journey, um, and it has to be built on trust. I think just for balance for today, you know, we, we've dived back into some of the problem sets, but where we were to where we are is incredible, um, and to be welcomed, and to be encouraged, um, and to be got after um, to get to that next level. And I think, I think the appetite is there, but, but the intent at the top and then enabling everyone through the system to have the skills to do it and the confidence to do it um, is, is a huge challenge. And I think also in the people-centric space, you know, delivering for our most vulnerable in society, um, it's, it's not a science. It's an, it's an art. So what we're asking is all those individuals at the various layers of governmental departments to suddenly become artists. Um, I, I think the last time I, 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 I you know, mastering an art takes about 10,000 hours. Um, even some of the programs being rolled out, they don't equate to 10,000 hours. Um, but actually people's lives are materially impacted when we don't get this right. So it's, it is a cultural shift. It, it, is, it is a change of emphasis. Um, but it's built on trust, and that's where we need to go with this. Thank you. Um, on the point around data, I completely agree. Obviously, it's probably, along with risk and cost, in the top five things of what members want, greater visibility of pipelines. Um, and I would also agree with Chris that it's not that that problem is not recognised. Um, for us, it's now, I guess, about having a more honest conversation about what investment needs to be made yeah. to make data quality higher and for departments to have a better handle on what contracts they have with whom and what contracts are coming up. Um, so for us, it's kind of moving beyond acknowledging the problem to actually committing some cash uh, to making a difference. Um, on your question about Boris Johnson, I was really pleased in the report to see the kind of recommendation around having a minister responsible. We at the CBI had fantastic engagement with Oliver Dowden and we were very sad when he moved on because he'd given real kind of uh, push to the agenda and had been really collaborative with a lot of our members. Um, I guess with the new administration, we are seeing it as an opportunity. Actually, we think a lot of what the playbook uh, lays out and outsourcing in general can help support a lot of Boris's uh, priorities. So things like the NHS, levelling up, dare I say it. We've only had two mentions of that today. Um, and also, actually, some of his plans around cutting red tape and bureaucracy could actually help with delivering a more effective uh, public sector market. So I know one of the things that they're looking at is after we leave the EU, will it be possible to take past performance into account when you're awarding contracts? Things like that, I think, could actually make a real positive impact um, on the market as a whole. So we're seeing Boris as an opportunity. Thank you. And Tom, final thoughts? Uh, so, Gavin, I think I agree entirely with what's been said um, and, and sort of point about improving data quality on contracts finders so that you would have visibility of much more than those 10 to 25 contracts. On commercial pipelines, I think what's interesting in terms of what we found was that you know, there was some movement in terms of departments publishing these and getting them out, but actually there was so little detail on them, they were often buried in a sort of SME action plan or some other document that was impossible to find on gov.uk, um, so it really wasn't that helpful, despite the fact that some effort had been taken to do it. So I think there's a long way to go in terms of departments actually sort of working out what is necessary and useful to the external community, both providers, but also those trying to scrutinise government contracts. Uh, Fiona, I think that's a really interesting uh, question. I agree with Liz. I think there's some ways in which you can see how the playbook fits quite well into the new government's agenda, or at least more easily, perhaps, than it would have done with the coalition government. So this is a government that's much less focused on cost, on, on, on sort of delivering very steep budget cuts. That makes a real difference to this. I think outsourcing is often used crudely as a way to find magic budget cuts, which perhaps aren't there. Um, you've also got some of the things Liz mentioned about sort of buying British, investing in communities, etc., which the playbook could be seen to support if you have that sort of focus on, on quality and social value. A couple of other things. I think, you know, if you look at Dominic Cummings, Prime Minister's chief advisor, he has written um, at length, uh, about this on his blog and the fact that a lot of outsourcing that has gone on is, has, has not delivered value for money in, in the way that he would see it. So I think there's potential for a drive coming from there. I think the big question is how does the Cabinet Office fit, in for the, fit into this? Because I don't think this is a change programme that you can deliver from number 10. 
doesn't have the resources. So I think there's a question about how does Gove use the Cabinet Office and his ministerial team in the Cabinet Office to drive some of the change on this? Who's going to be responsible for that? Are they going to have a sufficient amount of uh, sort of resources and time to actually see this through? Brilliant, thank you. Um, with that, I'm going to bring it to a close. Um, <clears throat> the Institute's work on outsourcing is going to continue, and we'll be putting out a report in a couple of months' time on insourcing, which will be of particular interest to some questioners here today. Um, in the meantime, uh, I would encourage you to read the report we've just put out, or indeed the other reports that have been helpfully flagged by other questioners as containing useful information. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. A particular thanks to Shaw Trust uh, and Chris for supporting us, and I hope you'll all join me in giving a round of applause for our three. Thank you.